Children, as you know, to find Psalms, you pretty much go right into the middle of the Bible, and with uh, 150 chapters, it's, of course, the largest book of the Bible. As we turn to God's Word now, let's go to Him and ask for His aid and assistance. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for not leaving us alone. You have given us your word and spirit to guide us home. And Father, the road that we are walking on home is a road where we walk by faith and not by sight, and yet you have indeed given us your word and your spirit. Father, would you open up our hearts to your word and open your word to our hearts that we would know what we are to believe about you and also what you ask of your people. Father, may your word that's before us this morning be our rule. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher, and may your supreme glory be our chief concern through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. As I mentioned earlier, we are resuming our summer psalm series. We were last in psalms on the first Sunday in September of last year, where we looked at Psalm 12. We are now in uh, 13, seeing all of life as worship through the Psalms. The Psalms indeed mean songs, and there's 150 of them, 150 chapters uh, divided into five books. Uh, Most scholars think that's to uh, parallel the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. And these 150 songs are at once familiar. Uh, We're familiar with them, Psalm 23, Psalm 100, and others, and yet they're foreign. They were written a long time ago, over a period of 1,200 years between the 15th century and the 3rd century B.C. These are songs and prayers offered to God by His people Israel. It's the hymn and prayer book of the church then and now. Even though they are diverse, there's 150 of them. They are unified as they are centered upon the one true and living God and as they, each one of them expresses the divine human encounter. Children, if you look before you at the Psalms, you see it's different than Galatians. It's different than Mark. It, it looks different because it's poetry. It's, it's not um, prose. It's not um, a history. It's not narrative, it's, it's a song, it's a poem. And this poetry aspect causes us to slow down to read. It's tough to read a psalm fast. Just their very nature causes us to, to slow down. It informs our intellect, it arouses our emotions, it directs our wills, it stimulates our imaginations. And when we read the psalms with faith, we come away not just informed, not just with greater knowledge, by God's grace we come away transformed. Now I want to make a few comments here in this first sermon, this first one in our uh, resumption of our series about the Psalms and worship. Some of you may know of churches that are exclusive Psalm only singing churches. That's all they sing. Well, I believe that We don't need exclusive psalmody, but we do need inclusive psalmody. In fact, every Sunday that goes by, we are singing a psalm, one or two. Last week it was Psalm 103. This week we sang Psalm 13. 
Because the Psalms were to be used in corporate public worship. True worship. Worship that as we saw in a series a while back in John chapter 4 is biblically grounded and guided. It is God-focused, Christ-centered and Spirit-enabled. And the Psalms promote not just corporate worship here on the Lord's Day, but also what I'm calling all-of-life worship. The Lord's Day is the first day of the week. You don't have to answer out loud, but let me ask you this. Is your tank on empty? For the last week, have you been seen on the dashboard of your life empty? Refuel. We refuel here in worship. Are you lost? Do you look at this past week and you have been wandering? Corporate worship says return. Are you scattered? Are your thoughts and emotions in a in 360 degrees of direction right now? If so, corporate worship calls us to refocus. Because worship changes us for, from who we once were to who we are becoming and one day we will fully be. Corporate worship here on the Lord's Day is not just a good habit. It's not just tradition. We don't just show up week after week because it's the thing to do. No, Corporate worship on the Lord's Day is significant. Of course, the Lord deserves our worship. But worship reorients us and realigns us. And what do I mean? Worship as reorientation. Here, think with me about false gods. It's the move from unbeliever to believer. And if you think, oh yeah, I need to invite my unbelieving friends in here so they can hear God's word and they can come to faith in Christ and they can move from unbeliever to believer. Yes, amen. But you know what? It's also for us as well. Why? Because guaranteed this past week, we have in one way or another worshipped a false God. And we echo the cry of the man, I believe, help my unbelief. Because until we are in the Lord's presence fully, there will be a little bit of unbeliever in all of us. And worship serves to reorient us to the true God. But worship also serves to realign us. It's the false worship of the true God. It's not just reorienting ourselves to the true God, but it's once we're on the true God, is, is conforming our worship of Him to what pleases Him. This is for the growing and maturing believer, because until... We get to glory. Our worship won't be perfect. It'll still be mixed here and there with sin. So corporate worship serves to reorient us and to realign us. The Psalms are a precious treasure for the church. Why do we turn to the Psalms? Because the believer recognizes that while the whole world is full of injustice and suffering, and you may be saying, hey, it's not just the whole world out there, it's the world I'm facing. There's injustice, there's suffering. In the midst of that, the believer recognizes that God is our refuge and strength. And we see that in Psalms over and over and over again. The Psalms help us to express what we are thinking, feeling. You may have heard the, the, the call to be real, to be authentic. 
My friends, the Psalms help us to be real, to be authentic. In his introduction to his commentary on the Psalms, the reformer John Calvin writes this, and I'm going to read this paragraph to to you. Calvin says this before he begins his exposition of the Psalms. He says this, I have been accustomed to call this book, I think not inappropriately, an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has here drawn to the life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. Genuine and earnest prayer proceeds first from a sense of our need and next from faith in the promises of God. It is by perusing these inspired compositions that men will most effectively effectually be awakened to a sense of their maladies and at the same time instructed in seeking remedies for their cure. In a word, whatever may serve to encourage us when we are about to pray to God is taught in this book. Calvin says this is an anatomy of all of the parts of the soul and he says this, that it exposes both the problem and the solution, the malady and the remedy. As the anatomy of the soul, they open us up to see what's inside. They give us language to express what's going on in us. But we might as well say also that the Psalms are medicine for the soul as well. They serve to close us up and to heal us. I hope you all read the Preparing for Worship email, and I hope you read at least the excerpt from the chapter of the book, the chapter entitled, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? Well, what's the answer? The Psalms. What, to use the words of Calvin, can grieving, sorrowful, fearful, doubting, confused Christians sing? The Psalms. And joyful and thankful Christians can sing the Psalms as well. Now, I don't know right now your particular situation. You may be miserable. If so, Psalm 13 is for you. You may not be miserable. But down the road, something's going to be happen. Something's going to happen and you will find yourself in misery and Psalm 13 will be for you. Psalm 13 is one of the, the Psalms of lament. It serves to lay a, tr- a troubled situation before the Lord asking for His help 150 psalms, and of those 150, 50 at least are psalms of lament. A third of the entire book. It's the largest category, psalms of lament. The last psalm we were at, chapter 12, and the next one we will be at, chapter 14, are psalms of lament from a community perspective. Today we are going to look at an individual lament. I want us to be thankful right off the bat that the Bible is not censored. The tough stuff was not cut out of the Bible. It's there for us. Psalm 13 was not 
taken out because of only this idea that you needed joyful, bouncy, bubbly uh, encouragement, um, lifting up. No, this is going to describe the reality of life and praise God that it's in His Word. Psalm 13 is a psalm of David, as you see. We don't know the historical situation, especially the enemies David is facing. It's most likely during some time when he was on the run from, from Saul. But because it's a bit unknown, as I said earlier, we can insert appropriately our particular situation into this psalm. I want us to go now to the road trip that some of us will be taking this summer. And I'm sure that all of us have been on the road trip. You know, when you're in the front seat, you hear what the back seat says. And what does the back seat say on the road trip? When are we going to get there, right? How much longer? An appropriate answer, of course, from the front seat is, uh, we'll get there when we get there, right? That does not really help those in the back seat. Or in the day I was growing up in the back of the station wagon crawling around. We've all heard it. When are we going to get there? How much longer? Here's a complaint about how long it's going to take to get somewhere we want to be. The destination. To grandma's. To the beach. To the mountains. To the friends. How much longer? But here in Psalm 13 is a complaint about how long am I going to have to face trouble? I mean, it's not just a monotonous car ride. This is danger, difficulty, trials, tribulations, assault, struggle. How long? When do I get out of this trouble? Now, but to be sure, there's a destination that the author is looking forward to, but that destination really is the absence of trouble, the absence of difficulty. Um, let me uh, read this entire psalm, six verses, three stanzas. Psalm 13, to the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Psalm 13, six verses. And you can even see there are three stanzas where the, the verses are coupled one and two and three and four, and five and six. And, you know, it's dangerous for a preacher to try to make a passage have three points, right? It's dangerous to force it. But sometimes it just unfolds. And here it is in Psalm 13. We see the movement of faith from complaint to cry to confidence. 
Let's listen to the complaint, the pain, David's state, his long time in a low condition. Listen once again. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? I remember a number of papers, especially in high school, uh, getting back with a lot of red ink. And the comment was, too much repetition. My friends, here is repetition. God-inspired, inerrant, infallible repetition. How long? Not only do you have four how long, or some translations probably how much longer. Not only is there just the four cries, how long the complaint, there is a triple trouble. The psalmist David has a problem with God. He's got a problem with himself, an inner problem, and he's got an external problem, the enemy. It's triple trouble. I mean, you could, David's not thinking this way, but there's a theological aspect, a psychological aspect, and a sociological aspect, all to say that there are various aspects of this complicated trouble that he finds himself in me. Look at complaint number one. God has forgotten about me. The first part of verse eight. God has forgotten about me. Now, when you map this on to the entire teaching of God's word, what's the answer? No way. God has not forgotten. It's not possible. But it's how David feels at the moment. David, in the midst of whatever crisis, he feels forgotten. David not just speaks of God forgetting, but that God has hidden himself. Not only has God not remembered him, but God has run away, has moved, has hidden himself. It's the absence of God's presence that David senses. John Blanchard, an English theologian, who's written a great um, evangelistic booklet that we have in our um, welcome and information folder for visitors uh, called Ultimate Questions. Uh, John Blanchard says this, The storms of life no more indicate the absence of God than clouds indicate the absence of the sun. Did you hear that, kids? Just because it's cloudy outside, you don't doubt that the sun is behind the clouds. But right now, David doesn't have that kind of Assurance. David is thinking God, the Lord, has forgotten him and God, the Lord, has abandoned him. Being devastated by the troubles is one thing. Being abandoned is almost unbearable. Being abandoned, that's how David feels. And David is saying, God, you've forgotten about me. You've turned your face from me. I don't have the, the face, the shining of your presence as uh, Numbers 6, 24 through 26 speaks to. But God, you've left me all to myself. Okay, all I've got is me. I am all alone. And what is that? I must take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day. Because when David has to look inside and take counsel from himself, 
The record is broken. Sorrow, 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 distress. God has left me, not really into the enemy, but right now to myself. But he goes on to really do, do complain that God has allowed my enemies to triumph over me. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? There's the trouble with God. He's forgotten. He's turned His face from me. There's the trouble in myself. I am sorrowful to the point of death. And now my enemies, those external people and events, they're, they're triumphing over me. Again, the question is asked four times, how long? Here in these first verses, these first two verses of Psalm 13, we have the weariness that faith knows. Did you just sense the weariness David has? There's radio stations out there that advertise themselves as encouraging and uplifting, right? And that's great. I mean, to be sure, that's better than the alternative, isn't it? But does God know us or what? Distress, trial, difficulty, sorrow, it's here. It's in God's Word. What encouragement to know that we are not alone Last week in looking at temptation, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. God will make a way of escape, won't He? Here, there is no trial, no difficulty, no sorrow that's not common to man. But the psalm does not end with a complaint. Rather, the pain gives way to prayer. The complaint leads to the cry, and we see that in verses 3 and 4, where David responds by crying, Look, answer, and illuminate. Verse 3, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. The first petition David Cries, consider and answer me, O Lord my God. In other words, look. Now, if you're tracking with this psalm, here is a logical disconnect. The first part of verse 3 doesn't seem to follow or connect with what came before. Verse 1, David is bemoaning a God who is not paying attention to him. And now he's pleading to that same God for attention. You see, David is not completely dead here. In the words of Miracle Max, he is mostly dead here. Because a believer will simply keep coming back to God. Where else can the believer go? A believer instinctively knows what his words at times deny. Faith has its reactions. Faith follows its instincts because at times, that's all there is. My friends, if you find yourself in difficulty, danger, confusion, 
sorrow. Keep turning back to the Lord. He's not going to be put off by your complaint. Believers have nowhere else to go but to the Lord. Keep crying out to the Lord. And there's another petition. Do you see it? Light up my eyes. Light up my eyes. When I read this, I thought back to that situation where Saul's son Jonathan had defeated the Philistines and Saul had made a rash uh, decision to not allow the people to take any of the food and Jonathan didn't hear his father's command and what did he do? He tasted some honey, right? He'd just been in battle and you know they didn't have the meals ready to eat. They didn't have the sea rations. They had to forage for the food and here he stumbles upon honey and what does he do? He tastes the honey. 1 Samuel 14, 29, See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. David is asking the Lord to, to revive him, to let him see. His eyes have grown dim. It's blurry vision. It's cataract after cataract. Clear me up. Give me new lens. Uh, uh, Light up my eyes, he cries. But notice that David goes on to give three supporting arguments to support his position. David just doesn't say, light up my eyes. He, he, he marshals an argument. He makes an argument um, to support his petition. And we see this. Um, Lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over them. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Here David is making an argument to support his petition. Because David recognizes what we all should recognize is prayer is a thinking exercise. Do we pray thinking in prayer, we don't check our mind out. No, we bring our mind to bear. We, we present a rational, as it were, argument before the Lord. It concerns His fate. Lord, if You don't aid me, I'm going to die. It concerns His shame. Lord, if the enemies prevail, if the foes rejoice, I am going to be put to shame. And oh, by the way, Lord, because I am Your servant your name is going to be put to shame as well. So not only does faith follow its instincts, it turns to the Lord. But faith also assembles its reasons. Now here in verses 1 and 2 and 3 and 4, I think we see a balance. Because most of life is not an either or, but it's a both and. And in verses 1 and 2, we see emotion as the dominant Note And in 3 and 4, we see reasoning as the dominant note. And it's in the same psalm. Because in prayer, you have both emotion and reason together. When you go to the throne of grace, are tears falling from your eyes? Are arguments coming from your lips? Here is a beautiful biblical balance of both emotion and reason. 
Here in the middle two verses of Psalm 13, we see the instincts faith follows and the reasons faith assembles. As the psalmist, the singer, prays and cries out to the Lord. And beginning in verse 5, we have the turning point when the cry of the heart leads to the confidence of the heart. Verses 5 and 6, But I have trusted in your love, your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. Here's a change of attitude on the part of the singer and a change of atmosphere on the part of the song. Notice the little three-letter word that begins verse 5, but, yet, at times it can be rendered and. Here's the turning point. But, I have trusted in your steadfast love. And in the original language, it is I, I have trusted. It's emphatic. It is the pronoun I that is underlined, bolded, in italics. It is I have trusted in your steadfast love. Not anyone else, but I have. David doesn't say he's feeling better. He doesn't say, I just got a fresh start, a fresh shot of self-esteem. Well, what does David say? He says, first of all, that he trusts in the Lord's steadfast love. Now here, we need to have a brief Hebrew lesson. Because what you see translated steadfast love, or maybe mercy, or maybe unfailing love, is the Hebrew word hesed. Translated, steadfast love, loving kindness, love, and mercy. Now I want to say two things about hesed. And that is, first of all, it is surprising. It is surprising. Turn with me back to Exodus chapter 32. Second book of the Bible. Exodus chapter 32. Not... A good time is happening in with the people. The golden calf, right? Idolatry. Just as soon as God had given the Ten Commandments, there is idolatry. Yet Moses intercedes. Moses makes new tablets. And I want us to look at verse 6 of chapter 34. Moses has gone back up on the mount and God has given the new tablets. And in verse 6, we read this. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Now get this. What happened in chapter 32 and 33? God's people turn away. Moses intercedes. God responds. And what do we read? The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. The Lord. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. My friends, this is a miracle. Hesed has an aspect of grace in it. It's ought not to be. They don't deserve Hesed. But nonetheless, it is there. Most of us have been to a wedding. A wonderful occasion 
where a man and woman commit to live life together until death parts them, right? And some of you have been to a wedding reception where there is joy and laughter and food and festivities and maybe dancing, and it's a happy occasion. What is happening here in Exodus 32 and 33 is like the bride on her wedding day leaving the reception in the arms of another man and going home with him. But what does God say? What does he say? The Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful. My friends, that's us, isn't it? Turning away. And yet, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful. But not only is Hesed loving kindness surprising, it's also sustaining, it's ongoing. That's why Hesed really can best be translated with two English words. Steadfast love, loyal love. It's love that has committed itself and won't let go in Psalm 94, 18. The psalmist says, when I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love held me up. In Psalm 23, one of the most familiar and favorite of all psalms at the end, surely goodness and mercy, surely goodness and said, surely goodness and loving kindness shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Follow is a weak word to use. It is pursue. My friends, if you are trusting in Jesus, the Lord is pursuing you with steadfast love, faithful love, loyal love. It is love with stickum. It is love with super glue. It's the opening line of the hymn, O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. And with this turning point, David is resting his weary soul in the love that will not let him go. Because David knows that God has committed himself to his people in his covenant. My friends, covenant theology is not just the best way to understand the Bible. Covenant theology drives home the fact that the Lord has made a promise to us that he will not fail to keep. He moves from trust to joy. Notice it's not an academic trust alone. It rejoices in God's salvation. And this joy bursts forth in song. He sings of the goodness of the Lord. David trusts, he rejoices, and he sings. My friends, in the middle of the storms of life, David drops anchor in the truth. And the truth is holding him fast. He doesn't only drop anchor in the truth, but he recognizes that the truth builds a floor in the bottomless pit of his despair. Because you see, David really at the beginning is in the pit of despair. And the truth has built a floor upon which he can stand and go no further. My friends, where are you today? Where will you be tomorrow? 
Some of us may be in a pit of despair. You may be in a pit of despair right now. But you can join your voice to this. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. My friends, we are called to read this psalm, to sing this psalm with what? The eyes of faith. And what? And when we do that, that is when we read this psalm through the eyes of faith, what do we see? Two things. First, we see the movement of faith from anguish to assurance. Faith is active. We walk by faith. Faith works through love. Here, David is recounting the Lord's love for him and it's fueling his love for the Lord. His circumstances haven't necessarily changed at all. But his thinking, his sight has changed. Faith may seem non-existent at times, but the believer turns to the Lord. The cry of faith is, I believe, help my unbelief. And that's David's cry. So first we see the movement of faith from anguish to assurance. And now second and finally, we see the man of faith. The man of faith who sang this psalm. My friends, this psalm is all about Jesus. He had, Jesus says this in Luke 24, it's all about me. And Jesus sang this psalm. From the writer to the letter to the Hebrews, we learn this about Jesus. In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death, and He was heard because of His reverence. My friends, our cries our prayers are heard not because of our reverence, but because of His. Because you see, in the days following His resurrection, His ascension, and His sitting at the right hand of God the Father, Jesus continues to pray. For we learn just two chapters later in Hebrews, consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. My friends, if we hear Jesus praying verses 1 through 4 on the cross, losing the Father's face, being abandoned by the Father for a time as He paid for our sins, past, present, and future, we will be able to believe and sing verses 5 and 6 indeed. I'm so thankful and I hope you're thankful that this psalm is a part of God's Word. A revelation of who He is and what He has done for us in Jesus. Amen. For a closing prayer, 
I'm going to use a prayer that I ran across back on Sunday, the 26th of July, 2015, at 6.29 in the morning when it came into my inbox. As a fellow PCA pastor happened to write that morning a prayer coming out of his reflections on Psalm 13. We often use written prayers in our order of worship. And here I want us to benefit from a prayer that's been written earlier and by someone else. Let's pray. Father, this we know for sure. Your steadfast love for us in the gospel is unquestionable and inexhaustible. Through our rejoicing, Though our rejoicing and singing may presently be reduced to a still small voice, we bless you for dealing bountifully with us through the finished work of Jesus. This pain, heartache, and season soon will pass, may sooner, may soon be sooner. Until then, we unabashedly and unhesitatingly proclaim we are your beloved children and you are our graceful God. So very amen, we pray in Jesus' wonderful and merciful name. Amen.